Greyhound to Trap One. Is that you, Yates? Where are you? Welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Jason. And I'm Colin. Gentlemen, I've been expecting you. <laughs> uh, so today's episode, we're going to talk about Spyfall Part 2. Uh, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to review this episode with me. You're mixing all the metaphors together. You're mixing all the... <laughs> you know, you need a born identity one as well now. Uh, I can't think of... But any, yes, mission accepted. I can't think of any catchphrases from, from the born identity. No. No, I think we just need to hang off a building and then sort of jump to another building and land in the car, yeah. drive down some steps, drive through a subway, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. So uh, we can all, rem- all remember our names, can't we? That's it. <laughs> I also introduced my name wrong. I should say that I'm uh, Miller, Jason Miller. Yes. Very good. Oh, fuck it. Let's just record the whole thing again. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's good. <laughs> So, so Spyfall Part 1, we were left with quite the cliffhanger. Graham, Yaz and Ryan in a, a crashing plane that was um, about to fall out the sky. What, what did you think about the resolution? I felt it was a little bit Virgin New Adventures, travelling back in time to, to escape the danger. What did you think, Jason? It reminded me the most of Blink, where the plot is solved by somebody having a video conversation with the doctor, where the doctor knows what the answers are going to be and leaves pauses in her recording to allow you to fill in the blanks. So I happen to enjoy the resolution very much. The problem is when I got on the internet, which I guess was mistake number one, (laughs) the internet, and by that I mean fans on the internet, did not like the resolution the same way that I did. Where I thought I was watching an homage to Blink, they thought they were watching Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where you go back in time and set up the solution after the solution has already happened. So I happen to like it, but I'm quickly learning that I'm in a minority, at least in my social media bubble. Interesting. I I, I just thought it was... I thought it was fun. I thought it was kind of... I mean, I think the whole thing is huge, huge fun. Um... But I, uh, you, you can't use the predestination paradox every week because otherwise, what's the point of Doctor Who? And you know all these fixed point in time things, and that you shouldn't really go and do it. But it, it was it was just fun. It was just like I'm uh, right, right at the end of the episode where she, they're like, "Oh, how did you arrange all that?" She was like, "Oh yeah, I better go and do that." Um, I love a laminator. Uh, it was just it's just like the whole. I mean, the whole of these two parts has been the most fun I think Doctor Who has been since uh, the day of the Doctor in my in my opinion mm-hmm. I, I just uh, and I don't want it to be like this every week and I don't think you can maintain that quality I mean of course it would be great if they could but um, what a great way to start with these this two-parter um, uh, and yeah they you know Ryan landed the plane uh, with the Doctor's help that's okay fine to do it once but don't do it every every year uh, at all ever again <laughs> yeah it would reduce a, a little bit of jeopardy wouldn't it um, if, uh, if it exactly be, uh, so. it's funny you mentioned Blink as well the the aliens the Kazavin had something of the weeping angels about them didn't they where contact with them could send you through time essentially to a uh, you know to a different place and time so it felt like Blink was a huge influence on this and that's obviously a good idea, because if you want to base your story on somebody else's story, 
Boink is a good place to start. But you know, I like what Colin said about the episode being fun. Mm-hmm. If you were to list all the attributes of a Chris Chibnall script from Series 11, one <laughs> was usually pretty low on the agenda. So I'm also looking for variety in storytelling, which I don't think we happen to get a lot of in Season 11. We got a variety of settings, but we didn't get a variety in storytelling. This yeah. was an attempt to use a different narrative. You have the James Bond motif, and the, the uh, incidental music obviously was very James Bond-inspired. Mm-hmm. And then for week one, you had an awful lot of John Pertwee influence, I thought, which part two dropped. So you have Pertwee in part one, no Pertwee in part two. So I like that variety of storytelling, and I like the emphasis on fun. And I think after many, many years of writing for Doctor Who, Chibnall might finally have found a winning formula. Now, the trick is to not overdo it every single week. Mm. Yeah, I, I kind of... Uh, th- this is his strongest thing ever, I think. I mean, uh, and, and, and this is interesting because, I mean, from many levels, it works. Uh, uh, and it's not me that said this, uh, someone else has said this, but at the, the, the end of Re- Resolution, the last New Year special, it said the Doctor will return, i.e. that uh, it's a James Bond line, and he knew exactly what he was going to do a year later, ah. and he and he has a plan, and we should. Uh, and we're starting to see a bit more of it. And good luck to him. Good luck to him for, you know, um, uh, keep keeping going like this and having an overall plan. And, and it, I mean, I hope it's good. I mean, I hope it is. Um, Chris Packett's going on there. Uh, <laughs> so I really hope it is just going to reveal it's going to be I mean I think it's got all the hallmarks of that I mean, we'll, we'll talk about Gallifrey later I should think but um, just what a way to open what a way to um, get get the fam doing a bit more stuff um, and Jodie's performance her best yet especially at the end um, agreed so, agreed agreed yeah real treat real treat so um, what do we think of our new master Mark, I think he's excellent. I I really really like it. I I think after Spyfall Part One, there was and and this was shared with, with people online. I know um, I, I think Pete mentioned this. There's a worry that he might have that same very over the top manic insanity that you got from John Sim uh, in the RTD era. But I, I thought he switched between that the kind of restrained menace um, and then when he was kind of showboating when he arrived at the Victorian science fair uh he swung between one one extreme and the other i thought it was very very good very very threatening and he had um, a lot of that kind of um the kind of the dapper uh elegance as well of, of roger delgado which i really liked i will backtrack a bit and i will say number one that i had no idea that the master was in spyfall mm-hmm. if there had been spoilers on the internet i managed to miss every one now, I didn't quite recognize Sacha Dewan as I was watching the episode on New Year's Day. And what I'm very glad that I did not do is I am glad that I did not go on Wikipedia during a commercial break and look up, who is this fellow? Because if you went to Sacha Dewan's Wikipedia page, even before the American airing, even before the American airing, someone had already put on Sacha Dewan's Wikipedia page, he plays the master in the new series of Doctor Who. 
So if I had been curious enough to look him up and figure out where I recognized him from, I would have been spoiled for the episode, and I'm very glad mm. that I did not look him up. I really liked him when he was playing O in part one. I thought he was friendly. I thought he was affable. He was flirting with the He has a little bit. So I was completely blindsided by the reveal. And as I put in my blog post, this is probably one of the greatest cliffhangers of the new series. Yes. Especially because we have not seen a cliffhanger in two years since World Enough of Time. Mm. Now I've had a week to ten days to think about it. That was January 1st. It's now January 12th. I still think that was one of the greatest cliffhangers we've had since the 2005 revival, just for the shock value and the multiple jeopardy. So that's part one of my answer. Yeah. As for part two, Dewan had many different emotional beats in part two. So there's the unmitigated glee when he realizes that he's trapped the doctor. You have this simmering undercurrent of barely concealed rage throughout most of the episode as his plans are falling apart. So in part two, what really impressed me about Sacha Dewan is this very wide variety of emotional beats. So at the cliffhanger resolution, he is almost manic in his glee at having finally trapped the doctor. I love that. But then throughout most of the rest of the episode, he has this simmering, simmering rage, which we don't really see in previous Masters, and that was a new take on the character. Number three, you have that amazing scene on top of the Eiffel Tower where the Doctor and the Master are having this calm, rational discussion, and the Master goes, did I ever apologize for Legopolis? And the Doctor mm -hmm. says, no, and the Master says, good. I love that little callback, Legopolis being one of my favorite stories. Yeah. And then at the very end of the episode, you have DeWine coming back in as a video recording where he appears to be cosplaying as William Hartnell with the trousers and the grabbing his lapels. And he's delivering his speech to the doctor about what he did to Gallifrey. Now, not to get too far ahead of the discussion, but the last time we saw the Master, she had reformed, and she was on the side of the angels, and she died heroically. Something must have happened to make the Master evil again. And I am guessing that it is the Gallifrey storyline which is what made him not just evil again, but as evil as he has ever been and as angry and as rageful as he's ever been. And I'm really hoping we get more of Sasha Dewan because I thought he just nailed the part in every possible way. I completely agree with you, Jason. I think he is, he nailed the part. Um, you, the, the, the trap we all fell into was, oh, God, there's this really lovely guy in this house in Australia and we're all going around for tea and, uh, you, you know... He's one of the supporting cast. And that turnaround in his performance. I mean, that every time the master shows up, there is some kind of reveal every single time, uh, especially, or maybe not. You, you know, you, you see Delgado sort of plotting with a, um, a computer base somewhere for, for episode one. But, you, you know, think of the King, King's Demons or, um, you, you know, the Sound of Drums, all these epic, well, Actually, not King's Demons. Uh, it uh, reveals, um, uh, and, and this this was still one of them, and it was still most effective. It was almost like because the fans or the viewers have become so kind of well, nothing's really going to happen. It's just a James Bond thing, and we'll find out who these these aliens are at the end. That we just weren't expecting that level of 
um, plotting, and we got it. And uh, he, he is, I think he's an excellent, excellent master. I think he's all, already like, um, you know, my top two or three. Um, so, yeah, brilliant. So out of curiosity, when you say top two or three, who do you have above him? Obviously Delgado, because Delgado's always going to be number one. Who do well, you have you number two? say that. But no, no, you're right. You're right. <laughs> um, yes, obviously Roger, because we love him, and he was the, the original. Um, but I, I'm 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 struggling. I mean, look, I I I liked Michelle Gomez, but I I didn't think she was evil enough. I actually think Derek Jacobi is probably my second favorite master because on audio, and I've only listened to a bit of it, he is so fucking dark mm. and. And, and it's it's really real his voice as well. The man the man's got such an awesome voice. Um, so I, I think uh, you know it's it's that um, you know. But uh, there's uh, well, what about you? Oh well, for me, obviously, Roger Delgado is number one, and he's also number two. Everybody else is in third place. <laughs> Derek Jacoby, I have not got to the Big Finish stuff yet because I would need a second full-time job to afford the entire Big Finish over. Yeah. And Jacoby was only in one episode, and he was only the master for about 10 minutes in that episode. I happen to love his reveal, but it just wasn't long enough for me to put him higher up on the list. Makes sense. Uh, uh, this is a controversial opinion because he was a little variable in his performance. But Anthony Ainley was my first master. I started watching in the States with season 20. King's Demons was my first master story. He didn't always get it right. For example, in my novelization read-through, I'm up to Mark of the Ronnie now, and I watched Mark of the Ronnie Part 1 the other night. He's not always good in every story, and the scripts don't always serve him well. But when Anthony Ainley is good, like in Megapolis... Yep. Like at the part one cliffhanger to Planet of Fire, which is still my favorite master surprise reveal. I really think Anthony Ainley does not get enough credit for the way he played the part. And if Dewan is in the role long enough, and let's hope he is, he will probably surpass Ainley. But for me now, it goes Delgado, Ainley, Dewan, Jacoby, Sim, Gomez, dot, 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 <laughs> Eric Roberts. God, we're top ones, judge, aren't we? we are so top ones judge. are bunched up, and then the rest are all the way in the back. Excellent. Interesting. Yeah, I I absolutely love Michelle Gomez. Um, her incarnation is probably my second favorite at the moment. But I, I could well imagine Sasha Dewan moving up into second place with with subsequent appearances. Um, I think part of the surprise comes from nobody expecting the character to return this soon. After after Michelle Gomez, um, I thought they would give it a few years before before they revisited the character. So I think there was no expectation. I think people talk about the Daleks and the Cybermen returning. You know, when will they be back? But it, there's generally maybe a, a bigger bigger gap usually. Um, and I think Michelle Gomez is is such a, a great take on it. Um, and her arc as well, um, uh, as you say, the, the kind of the redemption that we saw by the end of Peter Capaldi's run um, was such a you know the biggest arc that you've ever seen from the master and, and the change in the character. 
Um, but but he, he had everything mastery to do in in the in this episode, right? Yeah. They gave him everything. I think my, one of my favourite scenes of the whole thing is where he bursts into that Victorian science fair yeah. with the tissue compression eliminator and just goes bang, 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 zap, zap, zap. And it, it was just so deadly, right? It's not just like Anthony Ainley holding a um, like a torch and pressing a button and then it goes, it's like people just go smash and yeah. they're, they're, they're zapped. And I, I just, it was just much more aggressive and angry and powerful. Uh, they gave him that to do. They gave him a collaboration with um, Sir Lenny Henry and uh, and these, um, I don't know, I keep calling them Kasabians, whatever, <laughs> but the, the other aliens. Um, and so it, it, it just, and, and, and maybe, if we, maybe we move on to this as well because we're talking about the Eiffel Tower scene. Um, the, the perception filter uh, removal such that he is identified by the Nazis as an imposter. Um, what did you guys think about that? I was a little disturbed by that. I thought it was kind of crossing the line into bad taste. The same way the doctor intentionally got Tim Shaw's name wrong. I didn't love the fact that she was using the master's race, so to speak, against him. Now you can rationalize it by saying that he's not killable by the Nazis and he survives another 77 years. I just didn't think that was the best um, ethical move in terms of writing the way the doctor would behave. I can't imagine any other doctor selling out the master to the Nazis like that. But my response is also filtered by, number one, my social media feed and also that article in The Guardian that was taking down the episode. So I didn't love it, but I would love to hear a differing opinion to persuade me otherwise. Yeah, I think I think if it had been solely that, it would maybe have been more problematic. Um, I think the the Morse code message um, to the Allies saying that he was a British spy, you know, the, the two things go you know kind of hand in hand in that way. Um, I did read something today um, that he was cast only about a week before filming so that had already been written before they knew that Sasha Dewan was going to play the part um, so it's kind of in hindsight maybe that it, it you know it creates a bigger problem about the the actor's ethnicity um, I'm not sure uh, you know the veracity of that it's, uh, it's just something I was reading on Twitter that uh, also know, the, creates an interesting question then because if they only cast him a week before filming that means they must have had somebody else lined up first, and they probably had another actor in mind before him. And who was that actor, and what was his nationality? Yeah. Anyway, we got uh, we um, we got someone uh, pretty awesome, um, and then switch over. You know, wait two hours, watch Dracula on BBC One, and he's there again. I still haven't watched that. It's still on my, it's still on my, uh, my recorder. To, uh, to okay, uh, yeah. okay. Uh, I won't say any more. Just it's very moffaty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, it's it is definitely worth watching. Um, but I'm just wondering, with you know, with uh, you know, has Chris Chibnall accelerated? Ooh. That's Hold on, I have, I have a crisis with my two cats. Could you bear with me like 30 seconds? Of course, yeah. Sorry. 
as you say, that's a, that's the, a cat fight. The, <laughs> the last two points I was going to make about about the master, just while uh, yeah, yeah, well, go for Jason it. Sorting that out. The the new effect for the tissue compression eliminator, I absolutely loved. It was it was almost comic. It was it was just yes. just the right side of, of funny. The way they, they they sort of instantly shrank with a little kind of puff of smoke around them. But it was frightening enough, like in his performance, um, and and that sort of capricious way that he did it with the, because uh, he said to that woman, "Did you move?" And then he sort of like, "Oh no, it's fine," but then killed her anyway. That's the master. Yes, that was that was excellent because it, it could have been a little bit jokey the way the way that effect worked. Um, and the second thing is when he arrived at the end. Where is my just carrying case? After seventy-seven years of of living through the uh, the twentieth century. At no point did he think about shaving that in his beard into a goatee. I would have, I'd have loved if he'd had a goatee when he oh, right. appeared. No, I love I love the scene where he just uh, he, he appears and goes, "I've just had the worst seventy-seven years of my life." Yeah, um, <laughs> just that again, really well plotted, really well done. A romp, an adventure, plays with time, but doesn't doesn't blow your mind like yeah. like uh, perhaps the Capaldi era might have or, or the Big Bang or whatever with with complexity it was straightforward enough to follow maybe there's that thing that and Stephen Moffat liked to do was to sort of create gaps where Big Finish can can um, can bring things in uh, you know if Sasha Duan I know he's, he's done Big Finish work in the past if they get him back for the master in the future that is an enormous playground of stories now that uh, that you could have the master. All right, I, apo- I apologize. The deal was that I was supposed to be home alone for this recording, and the opposite happened. So, oh, no problem at all. Let's resume where we were. Right, so we were just just sort of finishing up with the master, really, um, and just saying um, about how the you know the seventy seven years he was on Earth. Um, that's a great playground for big finish potentially in the future. That's right. That's right. Um, and also, I was a little disappointed that uh, he, at no point during that 77 years, had he shaved his beard down to a goatee. Uh, this also leaves the door open for a multiple master team-up, because the master was also on Earth for most of the 1970s in the Unit era, and Anthony Ailey was all over the 80s. Yeah. So there's room for a big finish multi-master story of like four or five masters at once, theoretically. And, and Missy was in the vault from about the 70s, I guess, onwards. It was about 50 years, wasn't it? Yeah. They could team up to try and spring her out the vault. Um, so I think what I was saying um, earlier was, I, I'm just wondering if Chris Chibnall had a... He's accelerated his master plan, perhaps, because it is a massive step up in terms of plotting. Do we feel that he's uh, had to adjust based on last season, or it was, you know, that was all deliberate, um, ground setting, um, and he's had to, uh, and this was always part of the plan. He'd come out with Spyfall, um, and it would be this intense, bring the back the master this early. I have to wonder if his hand was not forced by the media coverage. Over the summer, so about six months before before this, there was a series of rumors that he and Jodie Whittaker were both about to get fired. Now, Series 11 had good ratings, but the fan reaction on the internet was largely very poor. So either 
the BBC top brass said to him, the ratings are good, keep on doing what you're doing. Or somebody said to him, the ratings are up, but that's not going to last, and nobody liked any of your episodes, you need to go back and be a little more traditional. So I don't know which of those is what actually happened. I'll just say that I was a bit frustrated by the fact that with Series 11, he has this enormous sandbox to play in, and he doesn't play in any of them. And the stories that he was telling instead of playing in the sandbox, at least for his scripts, tended to be on the weak side. So the fact that he is now going full on, a lot of John Pertwee homages in Skyfall Part 1, bringing back the Master, and we know we have two other returning villains later in the season, plus the whole now the new Gallifrey has been destroyed story arc, whether it was what he wanted to do all along or whether he was forced into it, I'm very glad that it's being done this way because for now, the series has a momentum that it was completely lacking in Series 11. So whatever the reason, I am thankful for what we have. Agreed. Yeah, I know the sort of the, the official line that he, you know, he talks about in Doctor Who magazine is that uh, he wanted to try and attract new viewers with the first series and, and give them kind of their own new aliens and villains uh, with what we have in Series 11, uh, you know, with Tim Shaw and uh, the Pating and things like that, um, and then introduce them to the the wider Doctor Who universe, like you say, the toy box of bringing back the Daleks and the Cybermen and, and the Master. Um, but yeah, and I guess, you know, these sort of things, we don't find out the truth until years later, do we? You know, it's like sort of um, Christopher Eccleston's departure was spun at the time as, oh, this has been the plan all along to uh, introduce a new Doctor and then give a new generation uh, their own regeneration and things like that. But we you know, find out subsequently that that wasn't the plan and, and, and Eccleston left, uh, you know, yeah. before, um, you know, ideally he would have done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give... Chris Chibnall the the credit here. I think I think it's I think if it's um, probably what he's had in mind all along. Maybe it was a bit forward, but I, I think he's got a plan. I think it was so, you know, um, that so tightly done that uh, uh, that it's a re- it's ready to go. It's the next thing to do. Um, I, I think he is someone that, that that does have this. I think you could see it a bit in Broadchurch as well, where. Um, series one, two, and three were were very uh, connected um, and all fell together very, very well. So um, I'm, I'm going to give him that. I think, uh, but it, it just just felt like a jolt suddenly up into a high gear. Let's hope it really, really continues. Agreed. Definitely. And then we've got we've also got more of the Doctor's backstory. I think it was um, something in Series 11, um, other than the first sort of two or three stories, um, where they, they definitely sort of folded on from each other. You then had big gaps where they'd had unseen adventures. Um, and we didn't... It was never clear how much the, um, the, the companions knew about the Doctor, because she made quite a few references to regeneration in Series 11. Um, but they never on screen never used the word Time Lord or Gallifrey or anything like that so it was quite good that they clarified that I think that that we now know that they thought her references to regeneration were just a joke Um, and that you know she's basically a mystery to them um, yeah, I was reading the, uh, the the latest anthology book that came up from BBC Books, which is Star Tales, 
Um, and there's a story in that, which, you know, I guess the, I can't remember quite which one it was or who wrote it, but Yaz confer- uh, the doctor confirms to Yaz that she used to be a man. Um, and she kind of just doesn't ask any further details. She just goes, all oh, right. Um, whereas well, but Yaz used to be a man. Uh, no, sorry, the, the doctor did. No, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it would uh, be quite a twist for, uh, for um, spin-off media, that would be. Yeah, why not? Um, but I thought it was interesting that maybe her reaction uh, of her generation compared to Graham's. Um, you know, in, in this, he's like, she used to be a what? And, you know, like, uh, and, and just thinking that it was a joke. That you know, it maybe maybe speaks to the difference in generations. To uh, uh, you know, to um, you know, that sort of thing. Again, it's this slow uh, journey with the with the fan. It's mm. not just instant understanding and instant appreciation. It's uh, it's a complete reboot of um, how it works with companions. And just this, not just saying taking too much for granted, um, and, and it has to be sort of seen and proven. Uh, and I, I, you're right. I really like the way they they still don't know much about her. Mm. It's not like you know she's taken them to the, you know, Eye of Orion or Gallifrey or whatever, and uh, that that they're still learning. Um, that. That, you know, they're along, still enjoying it. Along with new viewers, I guess, as well, uh, you know, learning this stuff for the first time, kind of uh, gradually revealing the legend to them. And she is also now keeping a secret from the fam, which is not something the Doctor traditionally has done since the Sylvester McCoy era. Mm. So she tells them everything except for the most important fact of all, that Gallifrey has been destroyed and her home planet no longer exists again, and that she and the Master are presumably the last of the Time Lords. And she says, I come from Gallifrey. And they say, can we see it? And she goes, maybe later. So I am expecting, again, I don't know spoilers, I have not looked anything up, I'm not even looking at episode titles beyond today's airing of episode three, but I am assuming there is going to be a two-part season finale exploring the Gallifrey angle, where we see Sacha Dewan come back to Gallifrey, and he's good, and he wants to help, and then he learns the secret, and he turns evil again and destroys it. I am hoping we see that in a flashback, so we can see Dewan play the swing again, make good, affable person to a horrible, evil, over-the-top, uh, beer-stroking maniac. I want to see that happen. And then I want to see the Doctor's companions react to the fact that she has not been forthcoming with them about her planet being destroyed. And I want to see how they move on from there. After Russell T. Davies destroyed Gallifrey in 2005, after they had destroyed Gallifrey in the book line in the year 2000, the book line brought it back, Russell T. Davies brought it back. Is Chris Chibnall planning on bringing Gallifrey back again? And if so, does that happen this year or in Chibnall Series 5? Or is this the final end? But these are all things that I am hoping to learn later this season. I mean, from, from my perspective, it is back. It's just slightly sort of blown up and a bit scruffy, and everyone's kind of dead and buildings are a bit knackered. It's not like it's disappeared to another dimension again. It's back, it's there, um, and she can just like pop over. So, I, my definition is that it's back, um, but I guess you're meaning more narratively. So, Colin, do you think that people are still alive on Gallifrey and there are survivors trying to rebuild, no or do you believe it is now a dead planet? 
No idea. No idea. And that, that that's that's an interesting thing to see, right? You know, maybe the Castellan's still there with the mind probe. <laughs> oh no, not the mind probe. Well, the, the master. See, my certainly... impression is that Gallifrey was dead, and there was a dead planet, and there was nobody left alive. That was my take. And if I'm wrong, again, I would love to be proven wrong. Yeah, the master certainly seems to believe that he's killed everybody. Um, which is, I think, is an unusually effective day for the master, isn't it? Um, if he has managed to, to to wipe out an entire civilization, but I mean, the doctor yes, to actually be successful. Yeah, the doctor didn't particularly check. She just kind of poked her head out and and looked at the uh, the capital, didn't she? But you know, we know that there's um there's a second city which we saw in Day of the Doctor as well. Yes. So there is um, an entire planet. Um, including I mean, sort of 2.43 billion children or, or whatever it was that was revealed in Day of the Doctor. Um, so how are the current generation of Time Lords, including all those uh, Time Tots, culpable for, you know, the founding fathers, you know, whatever this secret is that's going to be revealed? Oh, well, why do they all just sit there in Gallifrey, right? There's only like three or four of them that seem to wander about. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's invent all these TARDIS, the... the this thing called the TARDIS, and there's only four of us that ever bother to use them. Um, no, I think you know. I think they've got a bit over the place. And like, look, Romana's got to be alive. Um, I'm, you know, so, Susan. Susan. Uh, uh, Lena. Um, Rodan. Yeah. Canine Mark One. <laughs> Zorak. Don't forget Ace. Zorak. Who's Zorak? Zorak was the most one-dimensional time lord in history from Arkham Infinity. Oh, right. Okay. you got to be a deep fan to know who Zorak is. <laughs> Which means that if Zorak comes back as the big bad behind Series 12, I would love it and nobody else would realize it. <laughs> I mean, uh, what do you think the secret could be that it would anger the master so much? Um, you know, in, in this one, it's like, I love a bit of chaos or, you know, a bit of chaos is a good thing. It doesn't seem like somebody who would be particularly morally outraged unless it's because, uh, you know, they, they continued, I think like you intimated before, Jason, they continued the missy arc of, uh, you know, basically being a redeemed character. And, and then felt so strongly about it that it, it sent them evil again. Do we think this is going to be something that uh, is going to make sense, really, uh, that, that the master would be so outraged as to kill everybody? That is my headcanon, and that's the way that I rationalize the master's return to evil in my head. Mm. I, I'm assuming we will find all this out later in the year. You don't set it up like that without a payoff. So I'm assuming the season finale will explain all this, or it could go off in a totally different direction that I was not expecting. And you know, on the internet, after part one, everybody was trying to say that what we saw was not what we saw. People were saying, oh, this has to be a pre-Anthony Ailey master. People were saying this has to be a multiverse master and not our master at all. And the explanation being ended up being much more simple and direct. Mm. Playing with the simple and direct answer, my belief is this is the next master after Michelle Gomez, after Missy. And that it was going back to Gallifrey and learning the secret that made him evil again. So I am expecting that. And in my head, I've already written half of the season finale right there. It would be funny if we got to the season finale and we learned that I am 100% wrong and that it is a pre-alien master or a multiverse master 
and a whole other story. And there's 17 other Gallifreys out there, like Gallifrey 661 or oh, God, Gallifrey 17. <laughs> no. So oh, I am hoping, for the simplicity, that I am right. Yeah. But, oh, time will tell, Ace. It always does. Is it something to, is it, could it be something to do with regeneration? Like, the... I don't know. It's interesting to, to define what would be so bad, or that was a lie, that the that the, like the master would be that angry about. Surely he doesn't give a shit about anything. Yeah. Um, but it's great. It's really sets it up. I actually don't hope. I I really hope we don't get it this year at all. I hope we get um, maybe some mentions of, of X, Y, and Z. I hope the season finale is maybe that sort of really like rusty-looking Cyberman, uh, and we don't hear about this for a while because I'd like it to play out. Um, and I think this is the master plan um, altogether. The Chibnall master so, plan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, for the thing for well, the first time, discs. for the first time, we we do know that um, Doctor Who is is going to continue to run for at least another three seasons after this one. Um, which I think is more security than they've they've had since it came back, or potentially ever. So it does give them that freedom to have a uh, you know five year story arc or a four year story arc. Be interesting to see how they do that. And of course, will series thirteen air in the year twenty twenty one, or do we have to wait another eighteen months or twenty four months before the next series? And do you lose momentum by not resolving the Gallifrey story arc until the year twenty twenty five? Yeah, I mean, I think oh, it seems to be something that only Doctor Who fans worry about this. I mean, um, I, I think, you know, we just last year had the end of Game of Thrones, which gave absolutely no concessions to you not having paid attention, you know, to the previous, um, you know, however many seasons, was it eight seasons it ran over? Um, and they never even did like a previously on Game of Thrones recap at the top of each episode. Uh, you know, we just had Avengers Endgame, which was a, a culmination of like kind of twenty odd movies. Um, it just seems to be kind of Doctor Who fans that worry about the casual viewer and, and, and people having to pay attention uh, when they actually watch it. I mean, think in the age of uh, you know downloads and, and box sets. Uh, I think that for, for some time now, the entire of the new series of Doctor Who. Has been available on the iPlayer in the UK, hasn't it? So you can uh, you can watch and rewatch to your heart's content. All right. So I have a question: What was um, Daniel Barton's master plan, and how were the Kasabians involved? Or someone correct me. <laughs> so here's here's my belief, and it's funny that I was watching Mark of the Running this week because it's almost the same story where the evil entities are trying to follow Earth's technological development. So the Kasavan are temporal spies, and they go all the way back to 1834, and they find the future Ada Hart Lovelace, and she's the first person on the technological ladder that leads to the computer. Mm -hmm. Daniel Barton was supposed to be the last rung on the ladder. He was going to format all of humanity and take it to the next level, possibly the digi-humans that Cassandra talked about in End of the World. So I didn't know if 
the Kasabi were going to invade and become the next human, so that everybody was half human, half Kasabi. That part I wasn't quite clear on. But I know that because Daniel Barton gets to escape at the end. So we're pretty sure that Daniel Barton is coming back because Lenny Henry has his extraction and he gets to escape at the end. So his plans might still be in effect. We know that Kasavin have now turned against the Master and have temporarily imprisoned him in their dimension. But they might still be working with Daniel Barton. And they might come back. He, uh, there is certainly room to tell another Daniel Barton story. These, these aliens, they've, they, they kind of saved Yaz and they sent her to Australia. They pulled the doctor off the plane. Um, it, it feels to me like they're not massively aligned to anyone. Mm. Uh, and that, that, I like that, that it's not clear. Um, I don't know if I'm misinterpreting it or not, but I, I, I like that impact. And, I, I, and the, the Daniel Barton thing, I mean, it's so thinly veiled um, he, that he's Zuckerberg um, uh, and that, uh, you, you know, we're, the, there's no privacy anymore such that we're actually just going to take your DNA and use it to be a hard drive. I don't quite get why, but still. Yeah, I think because what the master says is the, the Kasavin's plan is at the moment they, they've got sleeper agents all over our universe in preparation for a potential invasion, but they're not actually kind of ready to pull the trigger on it. Um, at the moment, they're just kind of gathering information and, and, uh, and they've got the sleeper agents. But Earth's intelligence uh, agencies are just starting to notice them now, um, which is odd because they, they, uh, you know, they can be pretty sneaky, can't they, and, and just appear and disappear at will. Um, but I guess that's what I guess the spies into it and, and, and makes it the sort of the spy pastiche. And then the master says that he gave them a new plan, which I think is the one where he's working with Barton to turn the human race or most of the human race into hard drives. But I think what they don't explain is who's going to use the hard drives, um, whether it's the Kasavin or whether it's then going to be sort of to the highest bidder, um, you know, if anybody particularly needs a lot of um, a lot of data storage. So All right, I'm, I'm going to bet the Daleks. Yeah. There you go. Uh, it's, it's, I'm thinking, Revelation of the Daleks, taking, taking all those people in uh, um, stasis, cryogenics, uh, and then turning them into Daleks by rewriting their DNA and programming them as Daleks with a ton of data. Um, oh, that could be a thing. Yeah. I mean, because you're saying about Barton escaping at the end, um, and it would seem on first viewing to appear that he's going to return. But I think the thing throughout Series 11 was um, like the, uh, was it Robertson, who was the presidential candidate, who just sort of yes. walks off at the end? Um, Chris then, Lewis, right. Yeah, the, the two contestants in the race um, in, in the second episode, in the, um, the name has just gone out of my head. Uh, Ghost Monument, which is important again because that was where we first heard about the quote-unquote timeless child. Yeah, those two characters just teleport away at the end. There was a lot in Series 11 of of characters um, quite abruptly leaving, um, like the the baddie in uh, the Rosa Parks episode as well. Yes, the leather-jacketed uh, fawns. He also escapes. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe this is like a Smallville situation where in season three, every monster from season one and two comes back all at the same time. 
Yeah, like they've all ended up in the same place when they've uh, escaped or teleported away. <laughs> They're in some giant villainous waiting room. And then in series 16 in the year 2028, here's an invading army of secondary characters that you barely remember from seven years ago. <laughs> I thought the interesting thing with Barton was um, with his mum, that was kind of the, the biggest insight into his character, wasn't it? That... Uh, you know, having um, dominated the uh, the technology industry and become incredibly rich and powerful, uh, he was really just seeking his mum's approval. Um, but and she, still never got it. Yeah, that um, if she didn't really approve of him moving to the states and uh, and, and leaving her behind, and becoming seven percent cassava. Yeah, that seemed like a much bigger deal in the first episode about. Um, about his DNA. In the second episode, he just says, well, you know, I, I test products and I experimented on myself. Um, but I know some people speculate that maybe Yaz was, was altered by her time in the Kasavin realm, that maybe that's going to pay into something later on. And of course, from a DNA standpoint, we are only about 96, 97% human. The rest of us is Neanderthal. So maybe there's going to be a Neanderthal invasion of the universe. Yeah. Well, a lot, 10% of us, at least, is bacteria. So By cell count, yes. Yeah. So you think the doctor's machine was just um, not calibrated correctly? <laughs> <laughs> just, just a big red herring. Well, if, uh, the, if the doctor is half human on his mother's side, maybe the doctor oh, is part just don't. Oh, did I did I go there? I'm sorry, I shouldn't have gone there. No. <laughs> I mean, just, just while we're on um, um, Mrs. Barton, I totally thought she was going to come back to life um, when they were around her corpse in that big hangar. It seemed like a, a jump scare waiting to happen. Did anybody else think she was going to like her eyes would open or something like that? Hmm. No, I. It could have been, but I think it, I'm glad they didn't. It's much more effective for the character that they did. Mm. So um, in terms of the real stars of the episode, you have the fam off doing their own thing, and you have the Doctor teaming up with two of the strongest women in history. Exactly. You've got Ada Lovelace from 1834, and you have Noor Anaya Khan, Madeline, behind French lines, in 1943, a year before she was killed in the concentration camps. And I thought it was great that the doctor, the first female doctor, teams up with two of the strongest women in recent history mm -hmm. and almost turns them into pseudo-companions for the episode. So what did you guys think of the guest characters playing Ada and Madeline? I loved it. I think that was spot on. I mean, and interesting, you were saying you were reading Mark of the Rani earlier. That this is, you know, that's George Stevenson, and uh, you know, it ex almost exactly the same thing. But it was very much hardly in it, really, compared to to what these characters did. But absolutely, um, good on Chris Chibnall for being um, obviously a very clear feminist in many, many ways, and just continuing to pile on these great historical characters and people. Uh, historical uh, people that, um, uh, that, that not everyone necessarily knows enough about mm -hmm. um, and that Babbage, Babbage wasn't treated like a, a fool or an idiot just because he's a man or anything. It was, he did one thing, 
Peter Lovelace did the, the um, took the work and continued it. Um, Saw the potential, basically. Yeah, didn't she? That was the uh, it, it, yeah. No, it, loved it. Um, also, great work with the grenade. Um, but uh, yeah, more of this. More of this. Fine. Actually, they should be they should be companions, right? They, and there's this thing where you, you know we have you know imagine taking uh, character uh, companions from uh, history and, and having having them come in the TARDIS and stay for for quite a long time instead of them all having to be contemporary. That's Which is the biggest missed opportunity in season twenty four. I'm going to be getting to time on the Ronnie soon enough. Time on the Ronnie ends with Albert Einstein in the TARDIS. I want season 24B with the Doctor and Mel and Einstein fighting crime and having fun. (laughs) So I want my Albert Einstein uh, Big Finish series, my Albert Einstein three-season Big Finish box set. It was played by the most terrible extra. All of them were like these terrible extras, that sort of, like bumbled around the TARDIS, just sort of pretending to speak to each other. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, uh, but the the other thing was the the whole kind of um, Superman two mind wipe thing uh, is back mm. in, in deeper force, uh, and, and again, it's clean. It it it. it it doesn't, you know, because all this talk about corrupting the timelines and things, I guess that's how they they get around it. Um, what do you guys think of that? I thought it was missing two emotional beats, and I'll explain my reasoning. Number one, we've all been watching 56, 57 years worth of Doctor Who. He has been interacting with historical personas for a long time. Going back to George Stevenson again, and I am not going to try to do the George Stevenson accent. I apologize in advance for not having that ability. But it, <laughs> well, he walks away at the end of Mark of the Ronnie giving Stevenson a terrible pun for the name Rocket. Your train will take off like a rocket. And Perry goes, your puns are getting worse. And the doctor goes, I thought they were improving. There was never any attempt to do a mind wipe before, so why are we doing it now? That's one. Secondly, when the Doctor is looking at Nora and Maya Khan, he must know, or she, sorry, she must know, I just judged her, I apologize. The Doctor must know that Nora and Maya Khan is going to be killed by the Nazis in a concentration camp in a year's time and is going to have the most horrible death. I wanted some on-screen explanation that the Doctor was aware of this. Mm. Instead, we got this very optimistic conversation, you know, do the fascists ever win? No, because of people like you. You know, I'm sitting here in 2020. The fascists are having a they're, – they're winning. So, Doctor, a little help. So I thought it was nice that the Doctor gives us reassurance to Nora and I and Khan before wiping her mind. But they could have gone a little bit further. And I don't know how you write that, but I wanted to see that written. And it never happened. And instead, she just walks away. And I'm not sure how you guys feel about that, but I thought it was possibly a missed opportunity. Yeah, I think... Um, uh, actually, just before talking about the characters, um, just the way that Ada is introduced, 
I thought was one of the most Doctor Who things. Um, you know, the Doctor lost in this kind of really strange, unfamiliar alien landscape. And then hearing something and finding a woman in 19th century dress uh, in a weird alien realm was, was like pure Doctor Who. It's, you know, it's the, it's the sort of mundane in an unusual place or the, or the alien in a, in a really recognizable place. And I thought that was fantastic. Um, but yeah, you're right. The um, about the characters, um, they, they weren't two people, and including Charles Babbage as well, that I knew very much about. So it did make me go to Wikipedia, which I guess is part of the intention on Chris Gibnell's part, you know, that you learn more about these people. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of uh, of, of, uh, of of Khan's character, yeah, that's um, that is pretty galling that after everything she went through that a year after that she was killed like you say there could have been some kind of acknowledgement of it um, you know in the way that they tied up the Rosa Parks episode didn't they with yeah, exactly. kind of a, a recap of, of her life from that point and they go to the asteroid Rosa Parks and they played the Black Lives Matter theme song that's right mm. there was a little more closure there yeah um what do you guys think about the humour this season? Um, I'm feeling that, as, as well as last season, I, I think it's more, I find it much more laugh out loud funny than the the Moffat era. I find it, the, the Moffat era is very, very clever sort of, um, you know, uh, quips and one-liners. But th- this is like actual comedy some of it slapstick with the with Graham's shoes. Some of it uh, situational with 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 the Astling Ryan not to tell them the the, the plan. Uh, I'm really really enjoying the just the simplicity and clearness of it. Like even the line last year, like um, that the guy standing for president um, is like, "Do you know who I am?" She's like, "You Ed Sheeran." Uh, it's it's refreshing. It's well different. I like it. Uh, so. Stephen Moffat had a very particular sense of humor that involved continuity puns. He takes up way too much space in Twice Upon a Time, talking about how the TARDIS windows have changed size since 1966. <laughs> that was Moffat's style of humor, very introspective, very nasal navel-gazing. It's funny if you like your continuity discussions, but it doesn't really appeal to a mass audience. Whereas on the other hand, Graham tap dancing with the James Bond laser shoes might have been a little too broad might have been a little too obvious but like you guys say it's laugh out loud funny and I didn't find series 11 all that amusing it was very earnest and it was very straightforward and they didn't really go for the laughs all that much except maybe for a little bit of kerblam with the social commentary so I thought it was a whole new style. I thought it was very welcome. And I don't want every episode to have that same strain of broad humor. But I like the idea that they were trying for it. And it was similar to the invasion in 1968, where the Cybermen are zapping the Doctor's feet, and he's dancing his way down the street as the laser guns keep shooting at him. It was almost that same kind of slapstick humor, and it's very hard to pull off that kind of physical comedy. So, number one, credit to Chibnall for trying. And number two, credit to Bradley Walsh for pulling it off. That cannot have been easy. Yeah, I find, I find Bradley Walsh's character very funny. I like when he was on the plane 
um, and and sort of sliding around and things like that as the you know as the plane was 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 diving. I think obviously it's a really subjective thing, humour. I probably find find Moffat's writing funnier. But you will enjoy you will enjoy Dracula. Yeah. I, I, I like sort of that kind of uh, yeah, just a kind of a, a clever quip or a line or you know something that uh, like you say is a, is a callback to something else. Um, but I, I think also things like yeah, you know it wasn't it wasn't all continuity references. I, you know I think um, you know I was talking my head. I think things like uh, you know the line in in the Christmas special about um, you know there's a horror movie called Alien. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> things like that. Uh, yeah, that, like uh, appeal to me quite a lot. Um, but no, I think uh, you've, you've got to have that in Doctor Who, haven't you? You've got to be able to switch between a, a comedic moment and it's the end of the world as we know it, uh, you know, on, on a dime sort of thing. And uh, Jodie Whittaker can do that really, really well. And I should jump in, yes. Peter Capaldi was very, very funny, and he was often laugh out loud funny. I'm not taking that away from him at all. Mm-hmm. Same here. I, I, I quite happily watch Capaldi just sort of pottering about making quips and and sort of vaguely insulting people uh for for years i think it, i think it's brilliant but this is this is just a funnier um more accessible um way of writing um that i think is you know more respectful to a audience that hasn't been watching for 57 years and why not i think probably uh, bradley walsh is a great asset as well because i know uh, i know i mean <laughs> Probably he's obviously a lot more famous in the UK, but he does a bit of everything, doesn't he? Um, but I was first aware of him as a comedian. He was in a double act with Joe Pasquale, uh, and they kind of did sketch shows and stuff like that. So he comes from a kind of a strong comedy background. So his his timing and uh, and, and delivery are particularly good, I think. And this is where being an American fan does me both a service and a disservice. Because number one, I don't know who any of these people are. Mm-hmm. So when I got on the internet in the early 1990s, the two most hated guest actors in Doctor Who history were Rodney Buse in Resurrection of the Daleks <laughs> and oh. Nicholas Parsons in The Curse of Fenric. Oh. And having been watching those episodes as an American who'd never heard of those people at age 11, 12, 16, I thought they were both amazing in their guest roles. Yeah, and then I get to Rick Art's Doctor Who and everyone says they were miscast and they were awful. And I didn't see it that way at all because I was just evaluating them based on the quality of their acting and not on their CVs. So to finish that thought before you yell at me and cut me off, which I'm sure is coming, I don't know the first thing about Lenny Henry. My blog post for Skyfall Part 1 is, I gather he's somebody famous in the UK. I don't know who he is. I thought he was very, very good as Barton. So that's my take as an American. No, no, no. I'm I'm going to jump in here because, look, uh, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, not the people that were sort of slapping oh. off Nic- Nicholas Parsons. Good, Nicholas Parsons. good, good. Because no, Nicholas great. Parsons is a national treasure. And But I get it. At the time when I was, you know, in my early teens watching Ken Dodd, like, um, in Delta of the Bannermen, I was like, oh, God, why? Uh, but now when I've grown up and I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, it's Ken Dodd. Uh, or it's Beryl Reed. Um, just to be clear, though, um, uh, Lenny, Sir Lenny Henry did a Doctor Who spoof about 35 years ago. And if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's great. Yeah, I think that was on more than 30 years from the TARDIS. I've okay, seen you have seen that on 30 seen. years from the TARDIS. Okay, yeah, because that is awesome. 
I believe it's on the uh, the Trial of a Time Lord box set as well, I think. Uh, the Season 23 Blu-ray just shipped from Kablam. I mean, Amazon this morning. I'll be getting it probably tomorrow or Tuesday. So that'll be the first thing I've got to look for. Oh, once you've uh, once you've watched it, you can enjoy uh, Colin, Keith, and I on the uh, Trap One podcast reviewing it. I will do that. A little plug there for for uh, just our hundredth episode of the podcast as well. So. Good. Yeah, no, I I agree. Uh, I'm I'm not somebody that is bothered by uh, the presence of. Nicholas Parsons or, or Halen Pace or anybody. And I think that carried over into the new series, didn't it, with Matt Lucas and uh, Catherine Tate a little bit. Um, but often, uh, I think, comedic actors like that make incredible actors. You know, like, um, you know, I think Billy Connolly's done some great performances in movies as well. Yeah. No, it's, it's just, it's, I mean, look at Billy Piper, for instance. Um, mm. Uh, pop singer turned uh, Doctor Who actor turned um, very serious actor and uh, you know in plays and, and doing really really well um, and at the time it was like oh but, you know the press as usual and also you know some fans were like oh Billy Piper is Doctor Who psychic mm-hmm. and how wrong anyone could have been uh, you know it hasn't gone wrong right Catherine Tate Great decision, Matt Lucas. Great decision, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you know, super well played. Just you've got one season of him being, um, you know, comic comic timing or exposition, whatever Missy called them. Uh, so, uh, you, you know, um, but Bradley Walsh again didn't know much about him apart from the chase, but happy to give him a chance, and he's absolutely terrific. Um, so, yeah, really good. So. In other words, the takeaway is that JNT level stunt casting works. It's fine. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. Except for when it doesn't. Thank God. I think no, but that's fine now. It, it, it was just at the time. It was. I was thinking more that you know my serious kind of Eric Sayward driven Doctor Who dark sci-fi was being <laughs> was being undermined by sort of happy, fun comedian uh, comedians popping in, and you know I don't think Helen Pacer at all funny I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say but um watching ken dog back now it's like you know um what a great you know great joke teller anyway we digress um uh so yeah and i'll just say as an american when they brought the american newsreader meredith vieira into the wedding of river song that completely took me out of the episode and it soured my mood for the next 20 minutes so I guess, from my point of view, I also don't like certain levels of stunt casting. That being said, Lenny Henry was terrific in both parts of Skyfall, and I would love to see him back and see some more Daniel Barton. He, I, I agree. He's, I, th- I really hope he comes back. Uh, what if he comes back as something and then uh, changes his mind or changes his approach? What if, what if this is the, the sort of metaphor for the tech companies? Um, paying their taxes or changing their ways or respecting privacy or realizing he's made a mistake. Um, that might be a chibnall thing to do, but I absolutely want to see him back. Agreed. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And, uh, and for me, the big disappointment is that Stephen Fry's character was killed off so soon as well. Cause I, I love Stephen Fry and it would have been great if he'd have been there. 
Yeah, maybe like a brigadier character, you know, somebody, uh, it would have been a, a quick way of, of getting the characters into a story if uh, maybe once a season he could contact them and say, oh, look, there's something strange going on, you know, I need you to investigate. Um, you have to replace him now and make the next see Hugh Laurie. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, I'm just dying. I, I've, I've got to watch, rewatch a bit of Brian Laurie. So good. Brilliant, absolutely. It is brilliant. And they're Jeeves and Worcester as well. I, I, I love. I've got the box set of that. Cool. Yeah. So, look, I mean, all in all, uh, just, you know, just to be clear, I think this is, was absolutely brilliant. Great two parts. Could not overly complex, but had twists and turns, an awesome cliffhanger. Uh, a great guest cast and great guest characters. Uh, they'd spent a ton of money on it, and it looked it. I thought Jodie's performance was very strong, um, especially with her return to Gallifrey. Um, I think this, the series is really picking up. And I, uh, like I say, I think this is the most enjoyable for me Doctor Who has been for a long, a long time. I think World Enough and Time was massively enjoyable uh, as, as well, but just very, very fun as well. So I'm a uh, great job, Chris Chibnall. Really, really great job. Can't fault it. Nine out of ten. Well, obviously I faulted it for knocking a point off, but um, <laughs> you know, really, uh, but you know, what, what, you know, great, great work. You know, basically what Colin said, this two-parter had everything. You had a great cliffhanger. You had a terrific, very deep guest cast. The location filming in South Africa was just gorgeous to look at. You had something for all companions to do. Everybody got a moment. You have the Doctor now playing angst, or the Jodie Whittaker Doctor playing angst for the first time. Mm. You have a surprise reveal that Gallifrey has been devastated. And now you have story arcs for the master and for the doctor and it gives series 12 a momentum and a mystery that series 11 did not have so you really could not ask for a better way to start the season and now all that remains to be seen is can Chibnall keep it up definitely yeah I really welcome the return of the story arc Um, and I feel like it, it struck a good balance of it was a great story in itself um, it leaves some questions dangling, not only, I think, for the story arc, but um, in terms of, like, say, Daniel Barton and everything, uh, you know, what's going to happen as the characters going forward and the master. Um, but then it's got uh, rewards for the long-term viewers as well um, in terms of the ongoing story of what's happening on Gallifrey um, and, and the return of the master as well. So, um, whereas um, I felt like maybe the, the resolution wouldn't have been as strong, but then you got boom, the big Gallifrey thing at the end. Uh, it, it ends on a real high like that. Cool. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, guys. Where can we find you each on the internet? Yes. So, um, shall we restart that, Mark? I didn't hear it. Oh, yeah, sorry, Mark yeah. faded out. I didn't hear that whole sentence. Oh, right, yeah. So, um, I was going to say thank you very much for joining me today, guys. Where can we find you on the internet? I am, as always, at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels on Twitter, and DR Who Novels WordPress. 
I have updated my blog a few times. I had my Terrence Dix tribute back in September, and I have done a write-up, a fairly long one, with pictures for Skyfall Part 1 and a second one for Skyfall Part 2. And the good Lord willing, and the quick don't rise, I will do one of those for every coming episode this season. 19 people came to read my blog post for Skyfall Part 2, and 19 Doctor Who fans, can't be wrong. So please check me out. <laughs> uh, I have none of those things, uh, but I will definitely check them out. Uh, I'm at Colin underscore Neil on Twitter. Thanks, Mark. It's been, uh, been great. Uh, and thanks, Jason. It's good to meet you. You too. Thanks for having me on, Mark, as always. No problem. Thank you. Uh, thanks for listening at home. And join us next time for Orphan 55. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.